0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the merger of mission delivery and IT bodes well for the future.
1: Seeing that kind of importance of the IT leadership being a closer part to the business and the business understanding that you have to have IT on board as well to be successful
0: has been um, really, really great to see. The Pentagon's top tester aims for early involvement in big defense projects.
2: We want to be involved in that and help you find those problems early so that they're more affordably and easily addressed so they're not a gigantic budget-busting deal at the end.
0: And Nick Gurton's challenge to DOD and industry.
2: We need to change the way we do this business and we're already in a good place to engage the broader community and shift how we approach this vexing problem
0: it's monday april eleventh, twenty 2022 welcome to the daily scoop podcast sponsored by salesforce every afternoon you'll learn what's going on today in government i'm the host of the daily scoop podcast francis rose Here's what's happening now. A year of evidence for action is underway at the White House. The Biden administration says the year of evidence will include three steps, sharing leading practices from federal agencies on evidence, strengthening evidence-based decision-making in the executive branch, and increasing collaboration inside and outside government. The White House says it will host a series of events on the steps. A database failures behind the most recent outage of the Cerner electronic health record system a VA spokesperson says an Oracle database failure knocked the electronic health records system offline for two hours last Wednesday afternoon. The VA says there was no data loss or data corruption. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. I'm hosting it this Thursday, April 14th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new White House budget request includes $300 million for the Technology Modernization Fund. Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martorana says the funding will go to cybersecurity and IT modernization projects. Matt Goodrich is Principal Solutions Engineer at Salesforce. He's former Director of FedRAMP at the General Services Administration. Salesforce sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Matt, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to see you again. What's the intersection that you've been talking about for years now between IT modernization projects and cybersecurity? Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. It's always good to chat with you, Francis. Um, I mean, I think at the core of it, I mean, modernization means you have to move off legacy systems and largely that means moving to the cloud. And so, you know, when I was back in government starting in 2009, took up the lead to say, let's do cybersecurity with cloud and and really kind of started how FedRAMP began. Um, And looking at, you know, it's really hard with a lot of the legacy systems that you have to be able to modernize them, particularly if you look at the way the government budgets. I mean, when you look at it conservatively, only 10 to 15% of the budget on IT is spent on R&D and maybe another 10 to 15% spent on modernization. Add in cybersecurity risks, and that's not enough money. So in order for agencies to really be able to modernize and increase their cybersecurity, it requires that move just to a new tech stack. Um, And that's really where platforms like Salesforce and a lot of other cloud platforms are really what are going to enable agencies to be able to not only have that modern platform that provides those new capabilities and the ability to access from anywhere, but also making sure that they're increasing their cybersecurity from their systems as they exist today.
0: I like your timeline other than it makes me feel old because <laughs> I think we talked about this in 2009 when you came into government and, and that was really at the beginning of the cloud-first policy that Vivek Kundra released around that time and so on. So we've been doing this for a while, but you wrote recently, one of the biggest hurdles to cloud computing adoption in the government has been government cybersecurity. Why is that?
1: You know, I still think, and and one, it's a good thing this is a podcast because you can't see my hair (laughs) now either, which is a lot more gray. Um, But I think a lot of that is really understanding the difference between security and compliance. And I still think that there's a lot of look at compliance for compliance sake. And I think a lot of uh, agencies when they're looking at new systems um, are really only looking at the compliance piece of it. And FedRAMP does do a large way to get get rid of all of those compliance hurdles, but it's still, there's some random policies and things like that And the previous administrations have done some great jobs at trying to remove some of those policy burdens around compliance. But I think by and large, if you look at FSMA reports of what agencies have for legacy systems compared to what they're getting in cloud systems, it's night and day. And so I think what you're looking at is we're beginning to see, particularly over the last two years in this pandemic world, where agencies are having, if they want their their employees to work or customers to engage with them, they're having to do it remotely and access from anywhere. And so I think that's one thing that's really been changing this dynamic with the federal government and governments at large is really looking at, okay, what is security? How does that fit into the context of compliance, not just compliance and then security? And so I think that's still something, though, that we're fighting on a on a kind of day-to-day basis to really have people understand where the security needs are being met and where maybe compliances might lag. But it doesn't mean that the security of the data is, is um, compromised or something that is worse than what they're using now.
0: You mentioned legacy a few minutes ago, Matt, and you wrote about legacy in this blog post, and it scared me, quite frankly. When FedRAMP (laughs) released its requirements for the highest sensitivity level in 2016, it estimated over 50% of federal IT spend was on legacy systems which are oh, many of which are over 40 years old with no clear path to modernization the part of that that scares me is the no clear path to modernization and that hasn't changed since 2016 much unfortunately i don't think
1: I mean, I don't think it has for those systems itself, right? So I think the context of what has changed is there are now places those systems can go. Mm -hmm. Um, So in 2016, there was no FedRAMP high. So all of those high impact systems, there was no place in the cloud that could meet those security requirements, that could meet those compliance requirements. And now what you're seeing is a pretty big explosion among vendors that are now meeting that FedRAMP high requirements. And at first, it was really only the infrastructure providers. Um, but now you're looking at platforms like Salesforce and others that have software as a service platforms that agencies can move to that can um, store that data securely um, and provide all of those new benefits. I mean, a lot of those high impact systems are systems that, you, that employees could not access outside of an agency network. We're now seeing lots and lots of applications being developed across different agencies at that high impact level that I think really shows that difference of that path of modernization I don't think exists in the current tech stacks they're in, which means they have to modernize by moving to somewhere else. And now there's beginning to be a much bigger environment and landscape of places where those systems could land.
0: If I had five bucks for every time somebody on this program said the pandemic's changed everything, (laughs) we wouldn't be doing this program today, Matt. But in this respect, this is something that I think the pandemic has really changed, hasn't it? This is, it, it impressed upon people not just in the technology organizations of government agencies, but all across these agencies that that the mobility that they require, have required for the last two years and so on really is, it's not just critical. We can attach all those adjectives. It's necessary today, right?
1: It is. And I think it's funny, you know, we all talk about the last two years and say in a post pandemic world, we're still in the pandemic world. Um, And so I think it's been one sort of a, a, an unwanted, but a necessary driver for having these major fundamental changes, because like I said, many of those systems, employees, frankly, couldn't access them when they were at home, um, which might have been better for their morale, maybe, because when they got <laughs> home, they couldn't do any work. Um, but, you know, in today's world, they're going to have to be working from home. They, we can't have all employees in the office at the same time. Um, you know, many federal offices are still aren't fully open. And so I think what it's driven, though, is that change of understanding um, that people need to be able to access this data and work wherever they can in a secure manner. And I think another great benefit of it, though, is it's opening up the ability for the federal government and other state governments to hire people wherever. It's really allowing people to be able to have a broader workforce of, a, of greater understanding, greater de- technical knowledge, So they don't have to be in the D.C. area or whatever area that agency is in um, and still be able to do it in a way that they can manage it securely. So I think that's one thing that, you know, is weird to say a positive benefit, um, but has been at least a change that uh, that I think has been helping agencies through this time.
0: Well, I think everything you said makes a lot of sense, but I would also suggest maybe that people like me that are looking at the government from the outside in and haven't actually been in do a disservice to just focus on the telework and remote work necessity because the Defense Department is probably leading on pushing data to the edge, to the tactical edge, but every agency's talking about doing it and the necessity to do it and the benefits to mission delivery to do it, and that's not a telework thing. That's, that's a mission delivery necessity also, right?
1: I think so. I mean, I think what you're seeing, though, is, you know, like we said, the employee back end, just being able to do do the work that they need to do. But you're also seeing that also complements the ability to connect with um, the citizen in terms of how they're applying for grants or they're looking at different permits or they're looking at different things like that. A lot of those used to be so paper based and you'd have to go into a local office or you'd have to go into the DMV and do a lot of things. And we've seen just a massive explosion of a lot of those services becoming online over the past two years out of necessity because the citizens didn't want to go into an office or the offices weren't open because employees couldn't be there. And so besides the employees able to access the systems, customers and, and um, citizens being able to access those services, agencies have had to really reimagine that and having platforms that are secure in the cloud that they can modernize and launch in a matter of weeks versus months and years of having to build out and buy, um, I think really has changed um, fundamentally, I hope, for the long term, how we're operating.
0: Another thing that's changed at the risk of making this sound like a reunion from 2009, Matt, (laughs) is uh, that not only has IT completely permeated the entire operations of all these organizations that we're talking, and we're not just talking about federal government, state and local Mm -hmm. too, but the understanding that IT has permeated uh, the operations of all of these organizations, I think, is uh, well understood. You know, even on Capitol Hill, Congressman Langevin talked about it at one of our State Scoop events recently. Um, and, and So the Hill gets it, uh, and the non-IT leadership across agencies understands what Fed, FedRAMP is, why it's important, what the stack looks like, maybe not to the extent that the technical people do. But this knowledge now is all over these organizations and not just limited to the CIO organization.
1: Yeah, I mean, I will say in my conversations with agencies right now, it's funny. I mean, it used to be, all right, who's your business owner? Now, who's your IT owner? Those are so much more becoming intertwined. Mm -hmm. And if they are separate, they are the business owner is becoming much more tech savvy and the IT owner is becoming much more business savvy. And so I think that's been one thing that's been really cool to see is that kind of understanding that at the base of everything we're doing. IT is what allows us to be efficient, connect, do things well, and do things right. And so I think um, seeing that kind of importance of the IT leadership being a closer part to the business and the business understanding that you have to have IT on board as well to be successful has been um, really, really great to see.
0: A uh, final thought, Matt, either in or out of government, in your experience, the organizations that have done well to think about security from a security perspective and not just compliance, what have they done to do to do well at that, Matt?
1: Um. I mean, it's easier to say out of government, but I mean, budget for it, but it's really just making sure that it's a part of your general ethos. I mean, it's a part of your culture. It's one reason I joined Salesforce is trust is our number one value. Um, And that means we have people have to trust us to secure their data. And so I think it's really those organizations that um, understand what security means, but also understand truly what security means. Like I was saying earlier, compliance versus security. It's not just the checkbox activity of getting a federal audit through and everything else. Um, so it's really those those agencies that see that modernization and security are hand in hand um, and really prioritize the two together.
0: Matt, it's great to see you again. Great to catch up. Thanks for coming on today.
1: It was great chatting. Thanks for having me.
0: You can read more about the Tech Modernization Fund in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Tuesday's show, Innovation in the Cloud at the State Department. Brian Merrick of the State Department's on Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. One office in the Defense Department is moving beyond the concept of cybersecurity. The Office of Operational Test and Evaluation will assess cyber survivability for warfighting systems and other systems. Nick Girton is Director of Operational Test and Evaluation at the Department of Defense. Nick, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the difference between cybersecurity and cyber cyber survivability, and how will you test it in OTE? Welcome, sir.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me uh, on your program. Um, it's, it's great to have this opportunity to chat again. We've done this a few times uh, in the past, and uh, I'm excited to have this uh, as well. Uh, so coming into this office, uh, really, I, I started um, in earnest at the first week in January, and I am the recipient of a couple of very good and strong leaders that focused in on this problem of, of uh, cyber survivability as something all of our weapon systems need to do uh, more effectively than uh, a lot of them are currently doing it. Uh, so, uh, Bob Beeler, who is the last uh, DOTE, and then uh, uh, Ray O'Toole, my principal deputy, uh, both of them focused in on this topic. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the other gifts they gave me coming into this job. That uh, I am really in a very good position to lean aggressively forward into places where we really need to improve. And shifting the discussion around our weapon systems being vulnerable has is a big part of what I'm trying to bring to the department. And and the way of of hooking it to survivability. Is I think inspired, and, and I, I'm a recipient of that uh, prior leadership. When we look at our weapon systems, I've got a a, um, a couple of different folks in in my team that uh, help me with doing that kind of testing, and we've got you know red team people that are NSA certified, and you know we really uh, open up the hood. But honestly, there are so many programs out there that are underperforming in this area, and they can do a lot with not that much effort to improve the overall department's posture in um in cyber survivability. And one of the things that we'll be working on is you know holding a line on that and saying, you know, if you haven't measured up to these really very achievable goals, uh, not goals, requirements, they are requirements, have been requirements really for decades, but we just are going to hold a line on that, say, you know, if you can't do this level of cyber survivability, then when you show up to the warfight, you are not doing the warfighter any good because there might be exposed and weapon systems might not work the way we need them to. So you have to meet that barrier.
0: Are there common themes, Nick, in the ways that these programs are not measuring up or not performing well, in your words, uh, in terms of cyber survivability, or or is it mission dependent, technology dependent, some other reason? Uh, that m- might cause a, a diffusion or disparity in the way these systems are struggling.
2: So um, I will say yes to both, right? right. So certainly there are, there are some things that are just you know product dependent, but there are a lot of things that are just you know really housekeeping kind of things. Like you know, am I uh, is your system reasonably buttoned down for the insider threat? You know, the the near side uh, cyber penetration. Do you have all of your uh, software, is it up to date and is it managed? Have have you taken a look at what your vulnerabilities are relative to your software bill of materials? There is just some uh, general practices that are not uh, being adhered to coherently across the joint force. We need to bring that that visibility so we can have some transparency and, and change the game.
0: What is your sense of why that's not happening, given that we've been talking about the importance of at least cybersecurity for, I mean, decades now?
2: Yeah, honestly, I think shifting the discussion around to survivability as a warfighting imperative will have a big impact on that. Um, I was chatting with the deputy secretary not too long ago, and she was reflecting on a conversation she had with a Marine Corps general who said, ma'am, I've just cyber hygiene I'm this that's nothing about that that gets me excited right so we need to get the warfighters excited and they're all excited about surviving so that's where we're changing the the we're elevating the visibility changing the discussion but not really changing the requirements they're most of them are not that hard to meet
0: is there a difference in the standards or the requirements for cyber survivability for say an aircraft as opposed to well, something that's not nearly as sophisticated as that, or is there a floor uh, under which uh, cyber survivability has to underpin every single thing that you test?
2: Uh, so I, I'll, I'll be leaning more in the latter, right? So that we everything that is software reliant needs to attend to cyber vulnerability, cybersecurity and survivability. So I mean... I, I think there's a, it's a general set of practices. If you're an IP, you know, connected system, you just need to you know a, address these criteria and and step up. Now, honestly, some systems are more exposed. Like if it's a, a system that's operating more in the cloud, or if it's something that's uh, more of a, a C4I type of system that's connected, um, and uh, are there are opportunities for it to be penetrated? You know, then you just need to up your game. And there's some systems that are occasionally connected and or are much more leaning toward the cyber physical side of things that uh, we could have a risk based discussion around. And the risk management framework is, you know, pretty well wired for that. Uh, We just actually need to do the work.
0: You may have answered my next question already. I was going to ask you, is cyber survivability a yes, no test? Is it either uh, is or is not but it sounds like if if you're putting these things on a risk management framework that this is more art than science Nick
2: yeah so I think there are some things where it's there are some very uh, straightforward practices that are just yes but when you get into the details then you need to like really think about you know the application of risk um, I think some of the work that the department is doing under the auspices of you know a zero trust for instance you know how do we think about weapon systems that can fight through a cyber attack. I mean, the opponents are persistent and omnipresent, and you can't pretend like you're not going to get impacted by that machine that's out there that's trying to get at our systems. Mm
0: -hmm. What does that mean in the context of the kinds of things? Like John Sherman was on the program not long ago talking about the context of all of these things in strategic competition, because that's really what that's the mission of the department is to defend the United States. Uh, and and it strikes me that uh, that interactivity among what you're doing, what he's doing, what this is doing and so on is more important than ever. So John
2: and I have a great relationship. We've talked about this topic and we are uh, very well aligned. And in the places where he has some things to advance policy and practices, and I have places where I could you know, measure and assess Uh, We have a a really good relationship there, also working with the services, right? We have the operational test commanders, and and I've got a great relationship with all of those uh, people in this area specifically, but in general. Uh, That's another thing I I will say that I've inherited uh, a very good position from past leadership in um, putting DOT and E on the plane of we're here to help. Now we're going to call balls and strikes. You know, if, if it's not good, we're going, to, we're going to tell you, but it's nothing personal. It's just business. And um, we have a lot of uh, equity in that. Uh, Congress has very high regard for the work that we do. Uh, as we work with different programs, they see we bring more value than hurt. Sometimes we point out things that says, well, you know, you've got this, this test, but you're missing these things and you really need to do them. So we won't cause the tests to be longer. We elevate what needs to be done, and that might cause the test to be longer, but that's not because we're there. We're just showing people what they need to do anyway.
0: You wrote recently, T&E, test and evaluation, is good today, but we need to revolutionize the entire enterprise. How do you want to do that, and why is that necessary, Nick?
2: Oh, thanks for that transition. Uh, I'm very excited about this. As you know, I've worked in organizational change transformation really for years, And I think that's one of the reasons why I was called to service in this position. The way we're building capability is changing fast, right? Model-based engineering and uh, DevSecOps and all these other methods are uh, revolutionizing the way we build our mission systems. The operators are demanding changing capabilities to meet these uh, advanced threats and the pacing challenges that we have. TE needs to change too. And we do need to get on a fast horse and ride hard. So I, I'm excited about that. And fortunately I've got some great leaders underneath me and they're very well aligned to that as well. Um, so uh, we are on an adventure to revolutionize T and uh And we're also, I'll, I'll talk in a minute about, we, we really, I'm also the recipient of a restructuring you know, that uh, my principal deputy did over uh, about a year ago. Um, Give me a second. I'll get back to that one. So, revolutionizing team. Uh, there are equities that operational test has early in the product development lifecycle that we need to make sure get addressed. The early stage requirements, have. contract language. Are we going to get the right data? Uh, you know, the program outlay. How are we positioning ourselves to collect information to help the program see the problems early, so we're not witnesses to a train wreck at the end. Um, so that's been a big part of how I've been articulating revolutionizing teeny is getting involved earlier, not a lot, but enough to be able to say, hey, when we come out to do operational tests in increments, especially in the end when we have a production representative system, we want to be involved in that and help you find those problems early so that they're more affordably and easily addressed so they're not a gigantic budget-busting deal at the end.
0: Nick, hold that thought. We'll continue the conversation in a moment. Today's Daily Scoop podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. Salesforce Customer 360 for Public Sector enables relationship management, case management, collaboration, and lots more. The Salesforce DC World Tour is tomorrow, April 12th, in-person and on demand. You can learn more and register at salesforce.com world tour DC. More now with the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation at the Defense Department, Nick Gerton. Nick, you talked a moment ago about the change that you're trying to drive. How has the change in mindset, at least, maybe not in execution, one hundred percent, to that incremental development changed the way that your organization looks at stuff?
2: Yeah, so that's uh, um, that. That focuses in on how we need to think about the way we build our systems as things that are going to change continuously over their lifespan. There's two dimensions to that, right? First of all, we need to think differently about operational test as a lifecycle proposition and what is our revisit rate or how do we keep in touch with things so that we can understand big changes that have a big operational impact, enough to be able to need to you know, bring our oversight focus on it. Interoperability is another area that we need to really think about as things are changing over time. Interoperability is going to be impacted. How do we uh, assess that as a part of our our engagement with programs? I I honestly have more questions on that than answers at this point because that's something we need to work on together Mm -hmm. as a team in order to figure out what that revolution ends up looking like. I'm I'm putting leadership focus on it, but I need all of my team and, and the services to work together to figure out how to actually accomplish that. There's another twist to that too is that uh, back to you know revolutionizing teeny and how product development is changing over time. Another aspect of that is you know the coin of the realm in that world, especially for software reliant things, is like Agile or uh, DevSecOps as they call it, that that systems need to change a little bit over time. It, it's the way of parsing out your risk and making sure that your product is robust and reliable when it's fielded, changing fast. And more often, in smaller pieces. That's really different. And that's a lot of what I'm excited about coming into this job and working with you know, the services and the rest of DoD to uh, figure out how to empower that, how to be a part of that, how to encourage it as a part of fulfilling the warfighter's needs for
0: capability. So regarding the change in t and the change of a system over time and the way that T&E responds to that, you said right now you have more questions than answers. What are some of the questions that you have that either internally or externally you would like to solve to give you that greater understanding that you're seeking?
2: There's a couple of different things. One is that I want to have a I want my people to be involved in those early requirement-setting stages. The architecture: uh, Do we have the bones of a testable system? As a part of that, we want to think about modeling and simulation. Um, there's a lot of work that we've already been doing in modeling and simulation. But then, how do we make sure those models represent the the world that they're going to operate in? Uh, Are they validated and verified? And and There's going to be accrediting too, you know, it does it live up to what it's supposed to do and is there an authority out there that could say, yep, that does what it needs to do. So modeling early stage design, tying that into how the product matures over time and digital twinning and all that kind of stuff. But we need to make sure that the models represent the real problem set. And we're not kidding ourselves when, when we go to test with those things. To make sure that they're actually going to meet the warfighters' needs,
0: Mm -hmm. how do you expect to see that play out timeline-wise and uh, actual answer-wise? Do you have a sense, even though you don't have as all the answers that you would like? Do you have an indication, or are you really still at the beginning stages of of trying to gather that those answers, Nick?
2: Well, we're we're not without some predecessors, right? So, for instance, the F thirty five is going to be is being built to be able to handle a vexing warfighting challenge. Um, but there isn't a physical environment laydown where we can go and test that aircraft against all of the things it we'll see in real combat scenario. So you know, the department built a simulation environment and you know that simulation environment has its own tortured story but we, we don't need to go into that for the purposes of this discussion except that it's almost done. And we're going to you know, test this aircraft against the full mission profile through that simulation. But we need to make sure that it works right. So this has been a great learning experience. Painful at times, but great. And it's going to help us figure out how to apply that pattern to other programs.
0: You and I first talked almost 10 years ago when you were working in the Navy and we talked about the concept of open architecture. Give the people that were not listening to that 10 years ago, <laughs> Nick, um, a, a taste of what that work was and how that connects to what you're doing at ot e today.
2: Wow, that's a really great question. I'm really glad that you asked it because it really does connect. Um, uh, uh, in the conversations I'm having in, in the Pentagon where we're thinking about, so, if we're going to be upgrading capability over time more frequently, how, how do we do that? If our systems aren't modular, if they're not loosely coupled, if I can't change one thing over here without train wrecking everything around it, then you know what is the technical practices behind it? Well, it turns out I've worked on that quite a bit, so uh, so I could bring that to the table. Then you know how do we test those things? How do how do we improve those capabilities? How do we draw it over over time? Yeah, you know, I've done quite a bit of research in my past job at the Software Engineering Institute, uh, and so we have some answers in that area and some practices we can apply to how we do operational tests and evaluation, um, and and that that is a really a solid connection that I can bring to this job. That's uh, um, exciting for me to be involved in.
0: How important is terminology and lexicon, Nick? The reason I ask that is because you just used the word modular. And when I think of modular in the Navy from an acquisition perspective, I go to LCS, which struggled with the modularity concept. How important is the way that you name things in general, not just that particular word, and the way that you present them to your colleagues and peers across the department? Oh,
2: man. If if, if I thought I had a complicated job when I was uh, (laughs) a Navy civilian, you know, I used to joke there are five navies in the Navy, but, but now I'm across the joint force, right? So it's the, 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 the problem is at least four times harder. Um, so yes. Um, terminology, lexicon, semantics are, are all uh, critical to making sure that we're all on the same page. I'm going to park on interoperability in that context for just a second. Um, Cause we want you know, like, for instance, uh, uh, JADC2, um, Uh, you know, as a way of um, bringing the work, the joint force together so we can all understand what each other is doing and and having a sense of talking the same talk when we're talking to each other. That's going to be a big problem. And uh, we have a new uh, chief data officer uh, over associated with the uh, DOD CIO. I'm looking forward to working in partnership with that office as well, because when it comes to how do we test things, how do we see that they're interoperable, that they, as we change them, they... You know, if they do something different, it's because we are OK with it. Or if they do something different, it breaks stuff that we know about it right away and have a way of falling back and kind of regrouping. So um, this is a problem both technologically and interpersonally that keep everybody on the same page a vexing challenge and, uh, and, and a human one.
0: You talked about the restructuring in your office that uh, preceded you, but uh, you referenced uh, that it is serving you well. You think? Tell me about that restructuring and why you think it's making a difference in the way your office works, Nick.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I have uh, we we have five. We always have five different uh, major branches that we call deputates: um, uh, Lancy, Air and Space, and then one on Live Fire um uh, Rayo tool did a, a great service to the department and to me personally by taking those uh, those common equities of Live fire and making them a, a resource of, applied to the the main thrust of engaging in technologies with the services uh, sea airspace and land but we retooled that fifth organization to, being the think tank about what we want to do, the strategic initiatives, policy, and emerging technologies. Um, It's an acronym. We have to do that in the Defense Department, (laughs) SIPIT. So that's led by Dr. Sandra Hobson, and uh, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with that team because that's that rising tide. That's the place that we will uh, create the, the tools and the policies to help inform the broader community how to improve the our trade craft of doing test and evaluation
0: final but, thought um all of this uh, you alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation too nick all of this is not just at the osd level you're interacting with the services on all of these what's that interaction look like and and how are you i'm not suggesting that it's bad now but how are you working to improve that to to continue to mature that
2: well honestly it is a fever pitch of greatness right now. <laughs> we have great relationships with the, the, the leaders and the services that are doing operational tests. We engage with programs, we add value. Uh, you know, We are in a really sweet spot upon which to build, changing the way we do this business. So we're already deeply engaged. We're already impacting hundreds of programs in a positive way. And as we start to roll out these new strategies, we're, we're, we're from the government. We're here to help. We need to change the way we do this business. And we are already in a good place to engage the broader community and shift how we approach this vexing problem that will, be, that will keep us challenged throughout our careers. You know, we, this, is, this is something that we will always be working on how to improve this business.
0: Nick Gerton, the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation at the Department of Defense. It's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank
2: you so much. I really enjoyed it, and we'll hopefully do it again soon.
0: You can read more about DOD's Department of Operational Test and Evaluation in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow with Brian Merrick, the State Department's cloud guru. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.